This is Episode 3. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. April 19th, 1995. I realized it had to be an explosion or something. A bomb blast shakes America to its core. It's not something that's supposed to happen in places like Oklahoma City. They are bringing people out that are just covered in blood. 168 people are killed, children included. There's a children's devastation again in downtown Oklahoma City is absolutely incredible. The Alfred Murrah building is almost gone. It's like a war zone down there. It was the deadliest terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Another bomb, move back! That day, two experienced California emergency response managers board a military plane to lend a helping hand but nothing could have fully prepared them for what they were about to face. We got them trapped all the way on the seventh floor. In this episode, those two men will talk about how they took control of this massive rescue and recovery operation, what put them and their leadership skills to the ultimate test, and how they overcame the stress of working surrounded by death and destruction, all day and all night with little to no sleep. And it's awful hard on the officers and everybody that's had to bring the bodies out. And hearing their stories and lessons learned will certainly help strengthen your leadership skills and give you unparalleled insight on how to manage your own disaster. All that and more right now. So before I get started with this uh, episode of the podcast, uh, this of course, uh, April 19th, will be the 21st anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. I'm going to read a little excerpt first from a book by uh, James Lee Witt and James Morgan uh, called Stronger in the Broken Places. And I think it's really appropriate for this. Um, one of the lines in here says, the Oklahoma City bombing was a demarcation point that forever changed the way you look at the world. At 9.01 on April 19th, 1995, life was one way. By 9.03... That old life had vanished, and a new, harsher one was now a reality. Consequently, we all, especially those of us who, were, who went there, uh, remember exactly where we were when we heard the news. So, Chief Kim Zagaris and uh, Director Mark Gillarducci, you were both there, but you weren't there right when it happened. Where were you when you heard the news? Actually, we were in uh, San Jose, California, getting ready for uh, uh, the uh, Fire Rescue West conference where we had uh, presentations to do that day. And probably like most people, uh, as our day was just starting, um, we turned on the television and uh, and saw some of the footage coming out of Oklahoma City. Uh, at first, it looked like maybe it had been a natural gas explosion, but uh, real quickly, you could tell that it was far more than that. Were you both together at the same place? Uh, watching the news we were yeah we were um you know, as kim said getting ready to give a presentation um uh actually on uh technical rescue urban search and rescue operations um at the time california had really developed that capability and um uh it was starting to be um incorporated throughout the country and so um the event was very interesting to us because uh we knew that it was going to need the services of the urban search and rescue program, um, and as Kim said, we you know talk, looking at it on the news uh, within about uh, an hour of it actually happening, um, our pagers went off and and uh, and we were being contacted by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, about activating uh, urban search and rescue teams to respond to this event. Okay, so. How long was it then before you actually got on a plane or a train or however it was you got there? How long, how much time had passed? A couple hours is all it really was. Um, <clears throat> once, um, you know, FEMA said they're going to activate, uh, Mark actually started notification to the California Urban Search and Rescue teams. And uh, 
then um, it was pretty obvious not only where the team's going to go, but uh, Mark was going to uh, be activated as the IST leader for the incident support team for urban search and rescue. And um, we actually, since we were there at uh, San Jose for the conference, um, we actually had a good friend of ours, Jim Hone, um, who was the division chief at the time of Santa Monica uh, Fire, that uh, was going to go with us, but he didn't have any of his equipment. So went down to my vehicle and actually outfitted him <laughs> with, the, mm. with response gear so he could get to go out there with us. And uh, from there, we got a notification we were going we we're going to be going out on a, a C-141 out of Travis Air Force Base. And uh, away we went to um, get on those, uh, you know, get out there so we could load up and be uh, airborne. Mm. As a side note here real quick, just to let you uh, know, uh, folks who are listening, we actually have recently interviewed Jim Hone, uh, so you'll be hearing from him in the coming weeks. So um, so you're on your way. What's going through your mind while you're en route, uh, Mark? What are you thinking? Yeah, this was a pretty uh, amazing uh, event. I mean, you know, it was really the first um, major domestic terrorism um, occurrence in the country's history, uh, in recent times at least. And, um, uh, you know, we were really thinking, you know, all of our experience really had uh, been uh, oriented around structural collapse as a result of natural disaster like earthquakes. Um, so uh, a structural collapse from a bomb blast was going to look different. Uh, but, you know, so we're really thinking about how that was all going to come together. Um, really weren't sure until we actually got there uh, to understand the true magnitude um, and complexity of the incident. Um, so while we were en route from San Jose to Travis Air Force Base, uh, one of the teams from Sacramento was uh, was en route uh, to Travis the Midas. Um, and uh, we were able, once we got airborne, we were able to start to sort of strategize kind of how the the um, engagement would take place. Um, interesting side note is that while we were in, in route uh, to Oklahoma, we got word that there was a bombing in Sacramento, um, and uh, it was the, it was actually um, at the um, uh, Forestry Association building in downtown Sacramento, and actually was as a result of the Unabomber who had uh, detonated a bomb there. And so uh, at the time, uh, much like we saw in 9-11, where it looked like, you know, maybe we had multiple cases of terrorism going on simultaneously, you could imagine we really, um, our our senses were up and we were really concerned about what was happening uh, nationwide. And so we were getting a lot of intelligence coming in through the through the military onto the aircraft and keeping us informed on our, our uh, yeah, while we were en route to Oklahoma. So when you uh, arrive at uh, Ground Zero, what was the first thing that hit both of you, Director? Well, I'll tell you, it was surreal. Um, you know, um, we, we, we got to Tinker Air Force Base. We landed there in Oklahoma, and we, we um, a few of us, went ahead of the team uh, to get to the site. Um, I think when, when I, just thinking back, when we got to the site, we were, I think all of us uh, were in just complete awe of the amount of destruction. When you looked at this nine story uh, modern building um, and, and, and how it was collapsed, the pancake collapses that, that occurred all the way through, um, the amount of damage that, that occurred to that building. And then when you looked in a 360 degrees uh, area, you noticed that it wasn't just the Murrah building that was completely destroyed. There were multiple buildings around where the bomb had had, um, had detonated that, that had brought down. And, and so we also noticed that, um, you know, the local authorities, local Oklahoma City Fire and Police, these folks had done an unbelievably fantastic job in the first few hours of the incident. You know, we arrived about um, about 11.30 p.m. that night, and we were actually on site around midnight or so. And um, those folks had been working diligently, and they were able to account for all the folks that could be immediately rescued, um, 
and and the ones that could in fact be pulled out without needing the specialized resources of the urban rescue team uh, to go in. And, and we really weren't sure at the time, as we stood there and looked at the building, for a good 40 minutes, we looked at the building, just trying to assess the complexity. Um, and seeing the exhaustion and the shock on the part of the Oklahoma firefighters, knowing that everybody there had known somebody that had been trapped in that building. So not only were they rescuers, but they were also victimized by this. Um, and it really sunk into them that this was a, 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 an act of terror and not a natural disaster, which results in a different kind of mindset. Um, and so um, uh, even getting them to, to describe to us what they had done, and, and you know, to their credit, they, have, they had done a lot, but from our experience of being able to manage large incidents, um, we knew that they needed some very significant things to be put in place immediately. They needed perimeter control and security. We were worried about a secondary device or maybe an alternate kind of device. Hadn't been thought about that before. Um, we were uh, putting together a plan and we collectively uh, pulled together our management team at, at the site and it was interesting because um, uh, while I was uh, designated as the commander of the, of the management team, uh, Chief Zagaris was chief of, of plans and intel. Um, my operations chief was um, a uh, chief officer from the New York City Fire Department and uh, a, a number of other folks that made up that management team were from specialists around the country. And I, I, it really struck me that um, here we are in, you know, myself from California and Kim from California and a few others and, and these folks from the East Coast coming together to the central part of the country to deal with a catastrophe of such proportion to help these folks out and that we were going to now very uniquely pull together the, the best expertise that we had in this country for dealing with these kinds of events and work together to try to mitigate it. Um, so we put that plan in place, and 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 one of the first things is there because we were we were told that there could be up to 500 people, maybe even 900 people still in the building, mm. um, but we really needed to get a manifest and really get that intel down, and that's where Kim was just absolutely phenomenal, being able to get the facts that were necessary and build the plans with the objectives of us moving forward uh, in the next several weeks. So, Chief, tell me about that. When you arrived on that scene, uh, what hit you? What struck you? Very first gut reaction. Now, let me back up a little bit. Okay. Um, as, uh, as the director already said, as we were uh, en route, mm -hmm. even while we were at Travis Air Force Station gathering as much information as we could, and then when we were airborne in the 141, we were actually up in the cockpit with the pilots on satellite phone gathering information. We were asking for things as you know, to, to actually do a, a grid map. So when we got on the ground, we'd have some of that and some uh, other photography capabilities so we could actually see what the whole site looked like. That was done uh, while we were in route. And then, when, as he said, we landed in Tinker Air Force Base. And actually, I went out with the, um, came on the bus with the folks. As And this is nighttime now in Oklahoma City. As we arrived on scene and started making our way into the city, um, we got closer and closer. There was a series of uh, checkpoints that we would uh we have to stop and they'd see who we were before they'd let us through and make a phone call. Every time we'd stop, I'd actually get out of the out of the bus, look around, and you could actually see the blast percussion. And you'd look at the windows and, and the surrounding areas just to actually see. And I'd be s snapping pictures at that time. And, and like I said, and we finally arrived on scene. And now you look at the mural building <clears throat> and there's floodlights on it and they've got some tractors and some other things, um, uh, cranes that are working on, on site. Um, um, it's not, the whole thing is not real well fenced, but uh, I think as Mark indicated, uh, Oklahoma City had done just a phenomenal job um, between fire, law, and EMS and some of the local um, um, volunteers that had showed up. Um, just a tremendous job. And like I said, we're looking at it. We're getting briefed um, from the incident commander. And I mean, it is shock and awe. Uh, taking a look at this um, this facility out there, um, uh, we then after you know 
getting us a quick review of what, what we were going to have to deal with, uh, knowing what we actually had inbound for our teams, where we were going to put them. We went over to the uh, Southwest Bell building, uh, where it actually had a little bit of an auditorium and actually um, started started putting together what we would call the the IAP, the Incident Action Plan, for the next day. Um, gathered some of the information, um, went back over to the site, and actually found a, a part of the building we were actually going to operate out of for the uh, incident base uh, for the USAR operations uh, out of that hmm. particular site. Um, and, you know, as interesting as it may be, just to produce that incident action plan that day, we did it all on uh, – on our Mac uh, 540C computers. Wow. <laughs> and we had no printers to print them with, so, you know, the drill was how we were going to get those printed. And so I said, hey, we just need a fax number. Mm. And we, we, you know, faxed over the over the computer uh, to a fax, you know, sent over and faxed it to, to a machine where it printed out, and then we stuck it in the machines over there at Southwest Bell, and away we went. Hey, yeah. You know, this, is, uh, this is uh, something that I think defined the incident overall, and that is what Kim just described as workarounds or what I call improvise and overcome. Um, look, this this was, you know, an unbelievable event. And while we stood there and looked at the building, and, you know, initially I we were on the, this management team um, uh, that FEMA had asked us to come out. You wonder how, why is California in in, uh, in Oklahoma? Because the California program and we were the you know expertise that we brought to the table. Um, it was a, it, you know when I looked at the building, it wasn't until I got there that we decided that you know we, I would serve as the commander of the team and where we were actually at. I won't lie to you. You know, figuring out how we were going to approach this building. Let me just frame this building. It was a house of cards, a nine-story concrete uh, and steel frame structure that had been blown apart by a 2,000-pound bomb. Um, we we knew that that at the time there, there could be up to 15, 1,800 people in the building. We also knew that, the, that the, there was a daycare center uh, and there were uh, up to 20 or 25 children that were in the daycare center at the time. Um, we saw things on the ground that were uh, children's toys and other kinds. Our stress level was very high, and I knew that that we that for every action we took on that building, for every movement we would have to make on that building, there would be a immediate and opposite reaction. So it was such a you could hear the building creaking and moving. Um, we were concerned about weather coming in. Um, in Oklahoma, you know, they, there's a saying that, you know, wait five minutes and the weather will change. Um, all of these were factors and, and became factors throughout the entire incident. And so um, we really had to improvise and overcome through the event and had to think outside the box, as, as Kim just mentioned, just a small example. But one that was very critical because we needed documentation to be able to move forward. And then um, to be very, very precise as we move forward with regards to trying to identify and locate um, all of those victims, it had to be done. And the policy that I put forth was, you know, to safety was absolutely paramount. Um, and, um, and I think that, you know, in the end, one of the key successes of this was that we were able to get out of the building uh, at the end of the whole thing with very minor injuries and no no major injuries or fatalities. And I think that was a testament to Kim's planning and the team at large uh, and, and, the, and the protocols that we have in place. You mentioned expertise and Californians, uh, the USAR program that we have here, mutual aid. Uh, obviously, uh, states around the country look to California for uh, education for examples of how to do things the right way. Even though you had extensive training, extensive experience, you both come in and you see what is laid out in front of you. There had to be a moment of thinking, where do I even begin? How do I handle something like this? Did that go through your mind at all? Absolutely. I mean, the enormity of such an event uh, 
what we were seeing, what we were smelling. Uh, there were some fires burning. There was uh, the smell of fuel. Um, there was uh, the knowing the family members that were coming up looking for their family members that had not been accounted for. Um, the stress on the responders' faces. All of these were all the things that you are considering at the same time. And it's not like, you know, you know, the one thing that California brings and, and you know, having Chief Zagaris there was a, a, a tremendous example of someone who has been involved in the last 20 plus years in California, every major event, having that big event experience really made a difference in being able to sort of frame the issue and compartmentalize it in a, in a way moving forward. That said, um, uh, this was so unique and, and it, it just, it, you really had to take it one step at a time because, um, it was such a uh, unique, um, uh, event. And, um, in some ways we were, we were breaking new ground, uh, with regards to, uh, dealing with something, uh, like this, um, and like I said, the, the only experience really we had had was a major structural collapses from earthquakes. And when you get a structural collapse from the earthquake, you typically don't get um, the kind of damage to a building that you, you had here. I mean, you could get pancake collapses, but you get large pieces of concrete and others that stay relatively intact and they break. Here, there was areas where the concrete had been, because of the blast, completely pulverized. Plus, you had the burn uh, um, from the fireball and, and all of that, that we had to take into account. So, um, uh, and there were areas within the building that were, were quite dangerous as a result of that, that you may or may not necessarily see during earthquakes. There's also areas in the building that were actually very sensitive, uh, to be in as a whole. We had a number of, uh, federal law enforcement agencies with ongoing cases yeah. and, issues that uh, also needed some sensitivity. We had uh, also, uh, because it was a crime scene, <clears throat> we had a big crater out in front that we had to deal with. You had both local, state, and federal agencies involved, including the White House, the governor, who came out several times during the course of the event out there to talk to us, uh, FEMA director, the FBI director, uh, Attorney James, General, James Lee Witt, and uh, uh, Louis Fries at the time to work back through some issues. Um, there was a lot, uh, a lot going on. Um, the list that, that we worked back through with law enforcement of who was missing um, and guarding that list, uh, very few people actually had the list um, who was on there. Um, so as we, we would find a body and uh, the care uh, that needed to be taken, uh, to, you know, to bring them out of the building and then eventually turning them over to the coroner and then they would eventually reunite, reunite the loved one's uh, remains out of that. All had to be dealt with very carefully. There were briefings that uh, Mark had to do at the time um, that uh, needed to take place with the families on a day-to-day -day basis. At one point, we were using... Uh, uh, blueprints uh, of the building that just weren't going to make they weren't going to make things work. We actually uh, worked with FEMA to request uh, the two GIS uh, staff people, Dave Caroline and uh, uh, Dave Shreve, Dave Shreve, to uh, uh, come out and actually bring their capability. They're, and they're OES people at the time. OES really had the the most robust GIS capability in the country. And um, we we were able to leverage that and bring them out as a component of T Kim's operation, and they just they did things that were cutting edge that had never been done before. Such as, well, they were able to map that building. They were able to take the building what it would look like before the blast, take the take the all of the manifest of uh, of the building. In other words, where everybody sat in their office space, wow. who they were. Then, then if they would be in the building, based upon input from the engineers and other words, map the building after the blast, show the collapse pattern, and then make a determination generally where people would be located at, in the collapse pattern. That actually was a turning point for us in being able to accelerate the process because first we were having to search for these people. It was very difficult. You had to use dogs and you had to use uh, visual search and you had to use electronic cameras and etc 
And this actually, now we had a place, whereas if you could think about needles in a haystack, you know, now we had actually some indication of where those needles could be located and it focused our efforts in doing the actual tactical operations that once we found that the person that it, it, it ensued a multi-hour most sometimes even 15 20 hours to get an individual um, extricated from that collapse cutting through the uh -huh. concrete using heavy cranes heavy machinery it all had to be done in a in a choreographed and surgical process so if you could imagine huge cranes huge dump dump trucks huge huge uh, front end loaders being so precisely put in place so as not to cause a secondary collapse um it, it needed that precision and that's what our gis team was able to do and it became a model for the country after that event how quickly did they turn that around for you folks um, it was pretty fast, huh, Kim? I would very, say. It was actually very fast. They really? got on scene, and by the next day, already get started working back through some of the uh, some of the information we needed. And an example is we took every floor, and um, actually had put it up on a wall, and um, and so um, we go um, floor one, two, three, and then the next wall one, two, three, and the next one one, two, three. So we had all nine, hmm. uh, uh, the entire floor plan for nine, and what it looked like afterwards we took that with some of the mapping that the the photography that uh, department of defense had done for us and some of the flyovers we put the agencies that were on those floors and what we knew at the time and literally walked walked back through it and as as our folks as rescuers were digging back through the to the site there we knew that if we ran into the seventh floor and i'll just say it had a a blue pattern and we knew what the pattern was we knew what the floor looked like we were which floor we were on at that point uh -huh. and actually uh, take a look at it um and just imagine that everything there went you know from the from the top floor all the way to the bottom is crushed down there mm -hmm. and how it was worked i mean at one point we brought in so much so much shoring uh, the rescue folks did uh, working with the engineers. This is lumber and other kinds it, of material. It looked like a force down there to reinforce mm. everything. And, and like Mark had said, he's working with the engineers, working back and forth with the operations folks. Um, you got this huge slab that's hanging down that, uh, you know, everything you do, there's a, there's a counterbalance to make sure that the whole thing didn't come down. Um, we've, we've got the engineers out there uh, with um, with um, uh, infrared looking at it, um, seeing if the building's moving. At, at some point, you know, uh, a couple of days into it, you know, they had a, a bad weather and then a tornado watch and, and uh, you know, wow. get everybody out of the building. And we had rain and uh, uh, hail. Yeah, I mean, we actually had a 20 to 30 degree uh, temperature variations. Uh, at one point, it almost was like snowing on us. And uh, some days it rained so hard that we were worried about the weight of the water right. on the building uh, causing a secondary collapse. And then the next day it would be warm. And then, you know, uh, and you got to remember, the, we were out there. We were in the elements for, you know, uh, you know, 18, 19 days straight, 24-7, uh, uh, basically, basically having to go in and using shoring both steel and, and wood to be, to reconstruct the integrity of the building as we moved in, but we had to account for every single victim in that building. And you know, we it wasn't until maybe around the um, maybe third week or so that we moved from a rescue to a recovery mode because you know we there were void spaces. There's a potential that someone could be still alive in that building, particularly in the deeper entry part of the building. But unfortunately, um, it, that was not the case. But we we then moved in, and, and we needed to account for um, for everybody, in, including all 19 of those children, which which they were in basically what you would call the basement. So there was the first floor where the where the bombing took place, and then and then there was a there was like a, a sub floor where the daycare center was, mm -hmm. and and. Um, you know, we had to get down to that floor and we had to count for all those children. Mm, mm, mm. And all of this on top of the fact that you are going 18 hours a day, getting very little sleep. How did the lack of sleep affect your mind, your ability to process data, to handle the emotion, the stress? How much of an impact did that lack of sleep have on you? 
Well, for me, you know, we were straight, literally, without any sleep for 40 hours. First 40 hours, we mm. no one slept. It was uh, it was an adrenaline-filled, uh, dedicated, committed. We really wanted to get in and, and get save some lives if we could. Um, eventually, you just couldn't go any further because, you know, what happens is in these kind of events, safety is a paramount concern, and... The more tired you get, we're using power tools, cutting tools, uh, a flame, you know, um, um, settling torches, all these kinds of things. You needed to get, we needed to get into a rhythm, a battle rhythm where you had some, you know, some sleep. So we actually developed, um, uh, uh, actually Kim in the planning process uh, developed shifts. So you had a day shift uh, with a number of people and a particular operational period with objectives that needed to get done, and then we had a night shift, and then we ended up de slowly developing that, and then got on that as a standard throughout the incident, hmm. so that the guys in the day uh, could could sleep at night and, and vice versa, and that that worked pretty good after a while. Would you say? I think it worked great, and again, I think uh, this is actually the largest event at that time that the Urban Search and Rescue Program, who was still fairly new in its infancy, had all been together. So you got all these people from around the country with different knowledges and, you know, some, some had worked together, but most of them hadn't, but, uh, everybody had to come together. And, uh, again, you got to get into that rhythm. You got to get into that trust level. And like I said, we showed up and then we just kept bringing resources in and more. In fact, uh, the resources ended up over at the Oklahoma convention center, which at the time happened to have a restaurant, uh, uh, association that was meeting at the time. We literally took over that facility uh, to put all the urban search and rescue and other resources that were coming in uh, to a point where somebody's going to have to feed them. In California, you'd had you know you'd used our contracts and brought caterers in. In this particular case, the restaurant association stood up and did it out of the goodness of their hearts. Mm. And um, and and so, convention um, center had showers and had a place to sleep all the teams bring all their equipment in and you just like i said you'd had to been there when this had gone down but you're you know ideally you want people on 12-hour shifts we eventually put people on 12-hour shifts but by the time you got off shift you know maybe you're lucky if you got off at 14 maybe 16 hours because as we're transitioning you know things are coming in and out sometimes you know they were in the middle of a rescue. It was critical. Nobody wanted to break away. And uh, then folks would get back to the to the uh, convention center where we were using as a base of operations. And actually they would, you know, clean up a little bit, get something to eat, go in and shower. Um, Southwest Bell brought in phones so everybody could call home mm. and connections so they could keep in contact. It was a phenomenal operation. And, and I'll tell you this, is that um, – for the incident support team, that's command team that's sitting there working with Oklahoma City, who we need to be very careful because it was their operation. We were supporting them, and we made sure we did that. But on the same end, the amount of politics that needed to go on with, you know, between um, the city, state, and the federal level, including a presidential visit at, at one point, uh, and a lot of other folks, uh, dignitaries, uh, that needed to come in and, and uh, see part of it. It's just part of the ongoing operation so uh taking care of emergency ops and staying in that form the same end knowing that um, we've got other folks to brief and to go on and i'll tell you the law enforcement side of the house with the fbi investigation was very 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 critical at the time that, uh, that mark had to deal with with us and uh, it was not easy as commander of the management team uh you have to be a diplomat as well with all of these different uh, folks coming in. It's true. Um, but again, this is where I think uh, coming from California gives us an advantage. You know, the one thing about OES here uh, in California is that, in essence, that's exactly what we do all the time. We respond to every incident in California. We sort of fly in and land into a jurisdiction that has their way of life, their set of uh, authorities, their protocols, and we have to integrate with them and provide them technical guidance and support and um, expertise. And we do that at OES uh, uh, every day. So it's kind of in our DNA 
that that we that we do that now taking that to uh, uh, another state uh, in the middle of a country in a, uh, hmm. an event like this the the one thing and as Kim mentioned we had teams from all over the country we had we had over over um, I think we had what twelve or thirteen uh, USAR teams from all over the country as well as all the local responders from all over Oklahoma and Texas and surrounding states. The common glue that kept everything together is the incident command system. And, and of course, that's what we use here in California. And though that system was the, um, the system the, that the protocol and the structure that was used to keep everybody on the same page. If we did not have that, it would have been far more complicated because everybody from all around the country has kind of got their protocols. But the, the glue that keeps us all together in the common approach to incidents is ICS and um, and so I think between those two the, the the expertise that we brought from California of dealing with major events, multi-jurisdictional large you know kind of events uh, and that was recognized by FEMA and the other teams. That's why I think we were put in the positions of the leadership there mm-hmm. and ICS. Those were two factors that helped us be very successful. The third I would say would be the the fact that the community at large, as Kim mentioned, was so overwhelmingly supportive. Um, there was, we wanted for nothing, food, services. Um, about the second week, I could see the mental toll that this event was taking on our personnel. Um, when you're removing um, children, parts of children, parts of people, um, every day, when you're going in and trying to extract a victim who's wrapped around a column and you're 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 working through that for 15 hours next to that body uh uh cutting rebar extricating that person and then to just end your shift after being next to this body or this child for 15 hours to say that that does not have an impact uh it just you know it does and so part of having that that piece of incident stress debriefing really became a, a valuable thing and was really one of the first incidents we've had in the country where we really started focusing on post-incident stress debriefing. And we started it right there at the scene and then we carried it through when everybody got home. But I could tell you, it it um, it had an effect of, of, of many responders for many years to come mm-hmm. um, as a result of the what they saw there and what they experienced. So, Director, you, uh, I'm assuming, based on your role, that you weren't actually hands-on down there in the rubble, but you were uh, around it, you were seeing it, you were dealing with the people who were doing that. Um, what? How did that affect you long-term? Uh, Ryle, I, yeah, I wasn't the one picking up the saw. I, I, you know, we were, to, to be... First of all, the, the our command center was in the building, was just right next in the in the garage next to the building. Um, to be able to get a sense of the complexity and the process moving forward, you had to get in and crawl through the building and understand what was challenging. So we all, all of us, mm-hmm. saw it up close and personal. Um, there's Even today, 20-plus years later, uh, I think about this event. Um, since then, there's been a lot of terrorism in the world. There's been 9/11 and the and the and the World Trade Centers. There's been other kinds of events, and um, um, it, it had an effect on me. Uh, and uh, after that event, probably uh, for a period of time, um, you know, until I could work through all of my issues, uh, um, it did. It, and it's not just impacted me. Um, as responders will tell you, people in this business, we have wives and we have families and we typically take these feelings home to them. So they are as victimized as we are uh, with regards to this. And so you need to approach it as a whole of family, uh, kind of a whole of community in being able to recover. And for me, it took for me personally, it took me several years to kind of get over that. But, you know, was able to do it. Did you have to force yourself to talk about it or were you already kind of in that mode uh, with your with your wife, with your family? You know, cuz I've heard that you need to talk about things. Holding it in 
isn't good for not only you but for the relationship, uh, regardless of what the situation is. Did you find that as a challenge or were you already a Yeah, I mean, I, I would just tell you that, um, I mean, we all went through, it was mandatory. You had to go through post-incident debriefing after mm-hmm. you came back. But I got to tell you, from my years leading up to Oklahoma City and, and, and EMS and in fire and in all the things I've done, it just post-incident debriefing, that whole thing was not part of our our normal process. And so it was just natural to kind of keep it inside. Mm. And um, and so it was a little bit difficult to, to get in. I didn't think that everybody needed to know the details of what I saw. Um, mm. I think that uh, people have uh, have sort of correlated this with what individuals saw at war. Uh, um, but in time, I was able to talk about some of it, and, and, um, and it just became... You know, it, it, and 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 we, my, my wife and I and family all sort of went through it together, um, and we were able to you know share a little bit more. And I think it was harder for them to fully understand the complexities. Eventually, they they did. Mm. Chief, how about you? Was it was there a cathartic process for you in talking about it, or did you keep it inside as well, or how did you get through all that? You know, I I think at first we don't like talking about it. I mean, we're just yeah. trying to deal with it. But uh, I think. Um, as um, Mark were late, um, right after we got back, you know, people wanted briefings. Then we want they wanted presentations, and so you know, we worked together to put those things together to you know, uh, you know, tell people what had gone on, how we'd handled things, what we saw. That we talked about the Oklahoma standard and how they volunteers come together and took care of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked a lot with a lot of different folks, and I think that helped out quite a bit. I mean. I, I can still remember today that we'd be doing presentations and and um, uh, back then it was slide presentations mm-hmm. and uh, we'd throw on a little bit of a video uh, at that time and we'd have people in the audience literally in tears mm-hmm. um, talking about talking about it and at times it'd bring us to tears and uh, like I said it um, that went on for several years and then you know right after the event then we got into several after actions that went on for seemed like forever, but well over two years of going back through developing the after action, other things and changes in the program. So it was, it was a lot. And, and, and I think about it a lot. And then I think back and I think of Gary Morris, who was the fire chief at Oklahoma City at the time. Um, I think of uh, uh, Mike Shannon, who was the rescue liaison from Oklahoma City that worked with us. And we used to laugh because Mike would have on his, his same red uh, sweatshirt each and every day, <laughs> yeah. and um, and uh, was very much engaged in the entire operation with us out there. Um, to Keith Bryant, who's the current fire chief uh, with Oklahoma City, um, Governor Keating and his staff. I mean, I, I that's how well I can think back through mm. the different things, and it was all um, very emotional. You know, at first, you know, you're, you're still kind of numb when you come back, and then. Um, as, as time goes on and you do more presentations and you have more after actions and you talk about it, you start thinking about some of the, some of the things that, that occurred and what you saw. Um, definitely, so, definitely different. So would you recommend then that folks who, let's say in the future, uh, responders who go through something as equally or you know, similar in terms of uh, stress and trauma, would you recommend that they talk about it, that they, you know, get that kind of after that, that help right away or we've learned a lot you know over the years and that almost what happens uh pretty regularly today mm-hmm. even on a bad vehicle accident mm-hmm. or a shooting or something that the folks go to but i will tell you this i think each individual is uniquely different and some some you know participate pretty regularly and some just show up and uh they're less willing to communicate and yeah, but you got to keep an eye on it. I mean, uh, one thing we're definitely noticing in, in this business is uh, both fire and law and EMS, a lot more suicides that are probably job-related. Divorces. You know, that, mm-hmm. that are out there. So it's one thing, uh, as as uh, I think um, our, our work sites change, we got to keep an eye on those things and, you know, and our personnel that are involved. But uh, I definitely recommend it. Yeah. So – if you were going to give any kind of advice uh, or share lessons learned with anyone who may be listening to this, what do you think would be the top one or two takeaways uh, that, that you guys learned when you were out there? And maybe you didn't know it until later, but 
thinking back on it, what would you share with someone as, you know, something that you may have learned as a result of this? Overall, or with regards to uh, critical incident stress? Or I, I would say anything. You know, looking back, um, you know, when you got out there, neither one of you had encountered anything of this magnitude. Uh, maybe there's something in leadership. Was there a leadership lesson that you learned? Maybe something that you, uh, maybe looking back on it, mishandled, and then think, oh, maybe I'll do it differently next time, and you learn from that. Um. Well, for me, um, I would absolutely say that uh, one one lesson that was reinforced was that um, first of all, the incident command system works and it works well. Um, I would also say that um, uh, you can't underscore the importance of um, flexibility. Uh, and I mean that from the standpoint of when you're engaging with multiple jurisdictions uh, who have sort of their way of doing business, um, you develop impasse by being rigid in the approach. So in this case, we're using ICS as the baseline, but you had to be a little bit flexible in building out its structure to account for and accommodate for um the various jurisdictions and then you had to be willing to sit and communicate that so you you, I, you have to over communicate uh your intentions and be able to make sure that people know what you're doing and why you're doing it and um particularly in something as uh high profile and high stress as this that really could cost additional lives for me i felt the analogy that i've used often was that i felt sometimes like you know the general sending his troops into harm's way. Every shift that we put people into that building, knowing full well that it could come down on top of them and several more people could be killed, was a huge amount of stress. And, um, and so being ensuring that I communicated well um, and making sure that all the different players were um, on the same page. And as Kim mentioned, it was hard at times because we had conflicting issues. We had a crime scene and the law enforcement community, the FBI, wanting to move forward with their efforts, and we still had a rescue operation. And what we were, we basically had authority of that over that building until that rescue operation was done, and then the FBI would take it. So because they felt like they wanted to move forward, and they really couldn't, um, they wanted to push us to 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 be done with it. And um, I was not comfortable, and I would not relinquish control of that until I was comfortable based upon all the input from all of our team that we still had an option to address um, the retrieval of all those victims. Because as we walked out every day at the fence line, there were family members who were there and they were just asking us to please find their loved one. And um, it was very, very profoundly uh, powerful and difficult. So I would say for me, it, it was really that the issue about uh, good coordination and communication. Okay. I'm, I'm going to have to agree with Mark on <clears throat> communication and coordination. When we show up, it's not our house. It's their house, their jurisdiction. Um, and when you come in, you may be perceived as a pros from Dover, but the, the real drill here is we're no different than anybody else. So um, we're guests in our house. We've got to work with them to get it done. And I, I kind of laugh as, as in, in some regard because – can't emphasize the amount of stress that was there because I remember at one point when Mark said, hey, we need to move from the rescue to recovery and the conversations that he had with uh, Chief Mars and the governor, eventually he had to sit down and put something in writing. Mm. And difficult. Uh, and it was, it was a, like I said, a lot. Every day was a new challenge and, 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 and some new politics uh, besides the rescue challenges that we had to deal with. But you have to show up. You have to show up with your with your A game each and every day, and you have to. And, and, and trust me, there are there are conflicts with we bring this many people together that have different ideas, and you really have to concentrate on what those objectives are and how we're going to accomplish them. Um, and remember that at the end of the day, we're all on the same team, and um, we need to make sure that uh, that people buy into it and we need to make sure that ultimately the people we serve 
are the citizens. We need to recover those bodies. We need to reunite them with their loved ones. And it was very, very emotional. But that was our focus. Um, and it was um, a, a real tough time. How long had you two been colleagues up at that point? Since uh, 1987. Okay. Uh, I think I came so to work. Eight to years? Then I'd come to the agency just prior to Mark coming to work for the agency. And um, Okay. So, Mark, you smiling. Well, I, I, you know, our friendship and our, our, our professional partnership was actually forged by crisis. You know, we, we, we both had our backgrounds. We came to the agency and um, uh, really the first incident where we had to work together in, in, again, much like Oklahoma City in that it was a very large and complex event was the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake mm. when Kim and I... Uh, and Bob Gerber from our law enforcement division were at the site of the Cypress structure collapse, the I-880 structure collapse in Oakland. And we had, again, a, an event of such magnitude like we'd never seen here in California where we had this viaduct transportation route, multiple cars crushed, people trapped, um, having to go in and, and you know stabilize that structure. We had aftershocks going on. We have multiple resources from all over the state. Um, in the meantime, we had the fires in San Francisco. We had another search and rescue operation in Santa Cruz going on. Um, Are you trying to stress me out right now? No, because I'm I mean, feeling it. It, it. It's, it was, it, it's, it's, it's how, how Kim and I have, have forged a bond uh, that, that few really understand um, that um, you know, we've been through war together. And, uh, and that has um, that, that, and, and it's just been one after the other. California has no shortage of disasters. No. And, uh, you know, we could sit here for a couple hours just talk about all the major events yeah. we've been to. But that's where it all started. And it's it just been going ever since then, right? <laughs> and we kind of laugh because, um, you know, like you said, we've, we've grown up together. Mm -hmm. Our families have raised together. Um, we've uh, watched the agency change. The state's changed. Uh, you know, um, it was you've, almost – um, Go ahead. When, when – uh, when Mark was getting ready to come back with the agency and he had a health issue and we sat down and I said, Hey, this is job related. And, and, um, he had his mind in other, other places. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. And I started giving him a list of all the major mm -hmm. events, uh, that affected our health and everything else. And we've sat down over time and, and, and I tell you, we've lost, uh, Mark didn't mention by name, but, uh, our operations chief in Oklahoma city, a gentleman named Ray Downing, actually um, <clears throat> was their special operations chief in Oklahoma City and ran and ran ran New York City special ops and I'll, I'll tell you this he he was uh, he was an individual uh, above his time but uh, uh, he was he was killed during 9-11 uh, mm -hmm. and um, and we'd you know hard to believe that he was on the east coast we're on the west coast and it almost seems seamless we're in the room and our desires to what we wanted to do and how to get things go but We've lost a lot of loved ones, um, a lot of good friends uh, uh, in the course of uh, uh, being in emergency management and emergency response out of this side of the house. And so uh, it's we've, we've been through a lot. And like I said, uh, you know, in my 29 years of uh, 39 years of service, 29 with the agency, it's hard to believe that when you work for the Disneyland of disaster here in California, <laughs> um, that it doesn't impact you and your family and uh and the things that go on there. So, yeah. um, you know, battling a real emergency is tough. You know, uh, you know, it's actually tougher than than going down to legislature some days when you look <laughs> at the the thought or some of the other <laughs> politics that we have to deal with. But uh, so, needless to say, you folks have relied on each other a lot. You've leaned on each other, and you leaned on each other in Oklahoma City as well. We did. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, um, Kim was is a commensurate. Um, professional and 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 he he was always watching he always had my back and uh um you know he would make sure that uh, i was hydrated enough or fed enough or you know um he just it's just uh it's it, it's what we do for each other yeah. and so you yeah. know make, make sure he had a, a soda get him some uh, uh 
uh, caffeinated uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. energy there. And then uh, when you're working 40 hours, you, you gotta. <laughs> they didn't make, have Red Bulls back then. No, did they? no, no they but, didn't. But I tell you what, uh, sodas and candy bars to keep that sugar adrenaline running <laughs> um, is is extremely important. But well, uh, yeah. on, the, on the other side of the house is. We, you laugh, but, you know, we, we've got a little bit of downtime in between. And it's like, hey, did you call home? Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe you had a maybe you had a tell, maybe you had to tell the wife, don't worry about dinner. It'll show up and, and, and have pizza sent. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure you send the flowers. Make sure you get yeah, on the phone. In the midst of all this, this, this deal we're dealing with, Kim made sure that um, – that we had flowers sent to our wives. You know, we were gone for a long time. And, wow. and, you know, it's in the midst of all these, these, this, you know, I mean, you know, Kim's preparing, you know, I had to brief um, the president, uh, uh, the attorney general, and, uh, um, and, and the um, uh, FBI director. Kim put the entire briefing together. And all, all I could think of is in the midst of, 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 of putting together a presidential briefing, uh, you know, he had time to make sure that uh, flowers were sent to the wives. So, you know, I'm phenomenal impressed. guy. I'm impressed. Yeah. Wow. That's actually the the other side of the story. But I'll be real honest is that uh, a lot of things still, you know, each and every day things have got to go on. And you've got to make some things happen. Um, <clears throat> Oklahoma was so thankful they wanted to thank the USAR teams as they went out the door. So one of the other duties, you work all day and then so in the evening um, – one of the legislators would uh, work with his colleagues, and they would have a going away uh, thing at the Cowboy Hall of Fame. There I've been in there, Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and they well got to see it when it's turned on for an event. Mm-hmm. And they did a great job, and we had to coordinate them going out and the people coming in, and these were just some of the other duties as assigned. And then uh, at one point, you know, I sat down and I, you know, you know, I said, "This is really nice." I said, "But you know, you had to really thank your own." He said, "What do you mean?" I said. All the people who did all the work before we got here, and I said, "So do me a favor." And and and, and the assemblyman says, "What's that?" And I said, "Have an event for your folks <clears throat> after this thing winds down, and do an Oklahoma thank you to them." Mm. And I was actually I was actually lucky enough that uh, the um, uh, they sent a request to the governor of the state of California at that time and asked for me to come back for that thank you, mm-hmm. and uh, it was quite a tribute to sit there. And uh, and watch them thank their own folks after they done after they were done thanking all of us. At the same time, uh, later on afterwards, um, um, Southwest Airlines in Oklahoma decided uh, uh, to go around the country to thank the folks that had been there, and um, actually pulled out a brand new uh, 727 and flew everybody around to say thank you. In fact, even here in California, we uh, we at the Crocker Art Museum actually. Uh, I had the governor of Oklahoma and some of his staff and folks show up where they thank the Californians afterwards. Mm. It was quite an event. Yeah, you know, we we talk about what we did. There was a lot. I mean, look, there there was a tremendous effort on the part of so many. I think you mentioned you talked to Chief Hone and and maybe others. This was a team effort. It was one team, one fight as we move forward on this. And, um, you know, we were just parts of a larger, much more uh, involved response at local, state, federal, the private side, everybody coming to the community, faith-based organizations, NGOs, everybody coming together to make that a successful event. Hmm. Incredible. So I don't want to end this, uh, you know, on a on a down note for sure. I want to lighten it up even a little bit more. Any fun stories that you can tell me, something that happened that may have lifted your spirits while you were there that because that <laughs> that is necessary you've got to lift the spirits every now and then in a situation like this so can you share one or two stories yeah well i i for me um your birthday it was my birthday uh i, I celebrated my 35th birthday in the in the bowels of the murrah oklahoma building mm-hmm. um and uh it was really something special. Um, uh, did not, you know, wasn't thinking about it when I when we when we broke out of the, you know, our shift ended. We went back over to the convention center. Um, Kim and 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 the folks at FEMA, um, uh, the folks at Oklahoma citizens, people from from as far away as Enid, Oklahoma, and Tulsa, they came in. They baked me this massive cake. Uh, I had my name on it and the logo of FEMA. It was a birthday. CNN 
created a, a big uh, a banner for me that, uh, you know, happy birthday. And uh, uh, it was just, it was one of the gifts. And in fact, I, I still have stuff at home I use today that uh, they had given given me as a result of the birthday. And that was just really a, a phenomenal thing. Wow. Yeah, Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So, I mean, that was, that really was quite moving and, and um, yeah. I just. You have any stories about him? <laughs> Anything you can say? <laughs> Not that I can really share. Uh, Come you know, on, Kim. Uh, no, you know, Kim. Kim. Uh, well, I don't know. There's probably some stories. I mean, Kim. Kim is one of these guys that, while he's out in front taking care of business, is also behind the scenes, making sure all the details are taken care of, and mm -hmm. uh, and working with the local authorities and 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 the federal government. Um, uh, he he ensured that um, that we had what we needed, um, and that uh, um, you know I think I don't know maybe that you you kind of like that yourself, but I mean there was probably other things. I mean he had his downtime. You know um, I I think one of the more uplifting things is is that uh, as families would um, would show up outside the fence, um, we would sometimes take. Uh, the flowers or the or the teddy bears or stuffed animals and those types of things and we actually made a um a little spot inside the uh inside the uh, in and around the mural building that was up and standing that uh, grew considerably besides yeah. the fence outside that grew each and every day with all the things that people would leave and things so you know when to talk about an uplifting part for us coming in each and every day and seeing those uh, things out there, very, very moving, you know, keeps you up and going while, while you're doing the job. Uh, and like I said, um, very moving time. Um, uh, you want a funny story? We uh, had our, uh, the Fire Emergency Operating Center at uh, the old OES building going at the time. <clears throat> and we had some uh, USAR people that were in uh, assisting us at the time we were doing it for the staff that was at home. And... Um, um, they'd get these, we'd have these little tags that say SLOJ, Special, Log Special Logistics and Joint Operations, uh, on the tag. And, um, they were, you know, they'd be very proud. The other thing is, is, uh, uh Paul Beck from our staffs would say they'll stand for, uh, shitty little job officer inside <laughs> Special <laughs> Logistics, <laughs> Special Operations. So, anyway, those guys, every now and then, you know, somebody that was sitting there in Sacramento, they'd get their tag and it says, hey, we need you in Oklahoma City. And they'd be dispatched out, and so they 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 uh, they get they they show up in Oklahoma City, and they'd get to the uh, to one of the two uh, perimeter checks, and um, you know if you just had a local ID, you you probably weren't going to get in. Uh -huh. uh, they wouldn't let you in. So anyway, these guys would go, oh oh, you got a state ID, and it's yeah, just hell no shake. Yeah, come on and in. They, <laughs> they didn't know. All right, gentlemen. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap this up? Just want to make sure I haven't uh, left anything unsaid that you want. Well, to I, I would just say that, that you know, I mean, we could. There's a million stories uh, associated with this event. Um, um, I, w I will tell you that it. I think to this day it stands as the um, the you know sort of a model of being able to do interagency, interjurisdictional coordination. Um, it, um, I think it also stands as, you know, a, an example of how when working together on a common set of objectives, you can be successful even in the worst case scenario. Um, you know, I, I just think that, uh, unfortunately, we're going to see these kind of things again and again, and we need to continue to be uh, vigilant. And, um, you know, since then, OES has really become also the state's homeland security agency. We our, our mission has broadened dramatically, and so we are integrally engaged and involved with with all you know sort of counterterrorism efforts in California and around the world. Uh, and so we've really expanded our operation to try to account for these kinds of things. Um, and uh, you know, I just think it's very important that, that um, for for those listening, uh, not only you know if you're a citizen and uh, you want to do something, you know, be be aware, situational awareness. If you see something odd, you know, report it, say something about it. 
Uh, if you're a responder, um, uh, you need to be trained and well-trained and, uh, and, and make sure that you um, understand how all those principles work so that you can be safe and effective in, when you have to deal with your incident. Excellent. While we, um, while we're here talking about it, um, and it makes it look like we did a lot. I will tell you the other side of the house is that it's about we. Yeah. It's about an entire organization. Um, we couldn't do it without the support at that time of, of fire and rescue, without uh, the folks over in accounting and personnel and the executive office and those folks. It really takes everybody. And uh, from the folks that uh, uh, responded from their local jurisdiction and the support they had at home um, to everything else that goes on, it's about all of us. And um, there may not have been people directly on the ground with us, but without their support, without the support of what they did to get us the training and the and the support that we had, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. And like I said, it takes an entire organization, takes an entire emergency response family to get this all done is what I would tell you. And uh, um, I leave, I leave, I guess I'll leave the, leave you with one thought. Um, uh, you should be prepared, uh, you know, in your own family, in your own organization. It's better to give than to receive in the business of mutual aid out there, and I believe that each and every day. Um, and if you don't like how they're running an incident in your location uh, or where you're at, well, when, when you host it, you can show us how it's done. It's a give and take, and the world's not perfect, but uh, I agree with Mark. It's about uh, collaboration and cooperation and relationships. All right. Cal OES Fire Chief Kim Zagaris and Cal OES Director Mark Gillarducci, thank you very much for taking time out of your very busy days to reminisce with us uh, about Oklahoma City. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you, gentlemen. Yeah, we're incredibly lucky to have gotten both of those men into our studio at the same time. What you could not see are the looks each gave the other as they talked about what they endured in Oklahoma City and when the director talked about how their friendship, their bond, was forged out of disaster. He was serious, one right after the other. Well, they've been through a lot together for sure. Now, if you haven't looked at our show notes, please do. We have some photos taken at the scene in Oklahoma City by Kim Zagaris. Shots that really remind us of how devastating that bombing was and the danger in which every one of those responders worked. We have some helpful links for you as well. Well, that does it for this episode. We have a bonus show next Tuesday when we sit down with Tuolumne County Sheriff James Mealy. Till then, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.